We're getting ready to start, and I am a what's called a one-off, which means I, I'm just teaching this class today, and somebody else will be starting some. Is it you, guy, that's starting some? We don't know who's doing what next? Oh, you are. Great. What are you doing? You don't know yet. <laughs> Last week, uh, at this time, I was not here. I was in West Hollywood at a bar. And uh, my daughter was having her wedding reception celebration, which was delayed from, uh, she got married actually in April. And some people, some, I see three people that were there. Uh, they gave me the microphone to say something. And the first words out of my mouth were, it's dangerous to give a preacher a microphone on Sunday. <laughs> but I didn't preach at him. I just talked to him about marriage a little bit and about my son-in-law. It was a different experience. You know, it's not what I usually do on Sunday. But it was kind of interesting. Uh, so today we're going to talk about the goal of sanctification. And um, the goal of sanctification, I'll just go ahead and tell you, is freedom and love. That, that is what the goal of sanctification is, to experience freedom that enables us to love. And apparently we are not very good at loving. Uh, but I have begun with a quote, and so what I want to do is read some scripture, pray first, read some scripture. So Josh, would you open us in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time together this morning, that you would open our eyes to your word and help us to grow in our ability to love one another and our freedom in Christ. Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to read uh, verses 9 and 10, 9 through 11. Or actually 9 and 10. I'll get it right in a minute. Is he? Might take him up. All right. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's a pretty interesting statement. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, and let's look at verses 12 and 13 out of Philippians 2, just for a minute. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to good, do and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so look at the quote on the top of the page. It was by Archibald Alexander. And Archie was the professor of theology Presbyterian at Princeton from 1812 through 1851, so somewhere within the window of those years, he probably wrote this, and he has a book called Thoughts on Religious Experience, 
that uh, is worth reading. But this comes from that book. And so I'm going to read the quote. He says, It seems desirable to ascertain as precisely as we can the reasons why Christians commonly are of so diminutive a stature and of such feeble strength in their religion. First, he's naming the reasons, there's a a defect in our belief in the freeness of divine grace. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world. And to preach this doctrine fully without verging toward antinomianism, which is anti-lawism, is no easy task and is therefore seldom done. But Christians cannot but be lean and feeble when deprived of their proper nutriment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow, and the doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of faith. Christians are too much inclined to depend on themselves and not to derive their life entirely from Christ. There is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without practical, the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace, but it possesses none of the characteristics of the Christian life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth in systems of religion that are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. The new convert lives upon his performance rather than on Christ, while the older Christian is still found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations and in a measure uh, careless. At that point, the spirit of the world comes with resistless force. Here, I am persuaded, is the root of the evil. And until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God is manifested in the gospel, we shall have no vigorous growth of piety or godliness among professing Christians. Pretty good quote, huh? What what does he mean by free grace? Something's free. Right. Well, it's grace itself includes the concept of freedom in it, (laughs) that grace is unmerited, undeserved, in spite of ourselves, God being kind to us, giving us favor, when we've done nothing except for everything to provoke hostility and deserve his wrath. And so he says the root, he feels, one of the roots or reasons why Christians uh, struggle in growing it's because they don't really get or understand or live upon the basis of free grace. Now, let me warn you. If you go to your uh, iPad or computer and you type in free grace, you're going to get something entirely different because there's a heresy out there that is really antinomianism. It's lawlessness, and it's based upon some professors at Dallas Seminary probably 30 years ago, maybe 35 years ago, a guy named Zane Hodges. Uh, wrote a book on free grace, and he took grace to its infinite limits by saying it doesn't matter whether you make any progress as a Christian or not, doesn't matter whether your life changes or not, doesn't matter whether, whether you, uh, mature or not, uh, grace is grace, and if you got it, you got it, 
And uh, there's no real way to distinguish between those who do and don't. And, of course, that's heretical. But I think I think the quote here is very interesting uh, because um, being not only right in your head about this, but living your life upon the basis of it is makes a profound difference. But I agree with him in one statement totally. It is the hardest thing to do. Why do you think it's so hard to do? Give me more. What does counterintuitive mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, our whole life is based on what? Otherwise, the law of merit and performance. You achieve in order to receive. That's, uh, that's our life in every other dimension. But in this one, it sort of slaps us in the face. So what I'm going to do is sort of go through this idea of the goal of sanctification, hopefully keeping in mind this quote. I mean, I could tear into this quote and spend the rest of the class here talking about this, but uh, I'm not going to. You can uh, meditate upon it in your own time. But one of the most important issues in the Christian life is to learn to understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. All right, anybody got a good definition of what justification is? Anybody got the shorter catechism memorized? If you were a child going to a PCA church in the state of Mississippi, you could probably give me the definition off the top of your head because they have catechetical classes and they make a big deal out of kids memorizing that, which is not a bad idea, which is a wonderful idea. It's good to be able to say something good about Mississippi. And that we can do, right? You know about it. All right, so justification is what? It's an act. Sanctification is a what? A process. This is an act in which God declares us forever right with him upon the basis of the person and work of Christ, what he's accomplished on our behalf. And so justification is where God declares us to be right with him forever under his favor upon the basis of the person of work of Jesus and our faith is nude or naked. Calvin called it naked faith. Why? Because it's an empty hand. We bring nothing with us. Sanctification is monergistic. It is one person working. No, justification. Excuse me. Justification. Let me get this right. Justification. Or the heresy hounds will be upon me. Uh, justification is God declaring us to be, it is pure uh, grace in every way, faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's justification. But sanctification is the process by which, and this, this more and more has to do with the penalty of sin. What does sanctification have to do with? The power of sin, right? I'll give you a little alliteration here so you can remember it. And then ultimately, glorification will deliver us from what? The presence of sin. So this is an act where God declares us to be under his favor, right with him forever. And this neither grows or develops. It is 
uh, a declaration that happens once forever. And this is a process which, in which we participate. And so sanctification is a process by which the believer is delivered more and more from the power of sin is, and is conformed more and more to the image of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit and the responsible participation of faith. Justification is by faith alone. Sanctification is also by faith. But it also involves our responsible participation. And I see our responsible participation as both faith and repentance. So let's talk about this uh, a little bit more. Um, justification is the starting point to which we may return whenever we fail. But it is not the goal itself. The man who is resting or relaxed because of what God has done for him will, through that relaxation, lose his preoccupation with self and forget himself and be prompted to fruitfulness for others as an instrument of love. It is precisely this relaxation that inspires and produces effort. That's so counterintuitive. Because if you tell me that you have something to do in sanctification, then what am I going to do? Give me the rules. Give me the law. Tell me what I need to do. And since Christ is in me, I will do it. What is the first thing you need to do to be sanctified? Look to Christ. Same thing you do to be justified. You never get away from living by faith. And faith is always looking outside of yourself and looking at whom? Christ. And so that's where grace comes in. Uh, uh, Richard Lovelace in his book, The Di no, uh, one of the books he wrote on the Christian life, can't remember, Renewal is a Way of Life, put it this way. He says, when you read the Gospels and you look at the demands, you know, grace is free, but is it going to end up costing you everything? <laughs> uh, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. Uh, all those commands of Christ are real and valid. And so the first knee-jerk reaction is what? I better knuckle down. I better try harder. I better, you know, eat my Wheaties. That's dated, isn't it? <laughs> When's the last time you saw a box of Wheaties, huh? I used to love it because it had an athlete on the front that I wanted to be like, so I thought maybe eating Wheaties would help. Little did I know. It did not. But you see what I'm saying it is precisely relaxation that inspires and produces effort, yet those efforts will show again and again how much we fall short and fail uh, to love the way God has commanded us to love. Because the summary of the law is what? Summary of the law is two commandments. What are they? And it's love, right? How do you measure whether or not you're growing as a Christian? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, what? How you love one another. And so love is the great measure. I used to think it was sinning less and being more virtuous. When I was a young Christian, that's what I thought. Well, I don't do all these bad technicolor sins anymore. I don't do the big, fat, juicy ones. And I wasn't even aware. <laughs> this is so... So profound for me. I wasn't even aware of how deep it went. And uh, one of the things, sanctification, is you grow downward before you grow upward. God exposes our sinfulness more and more to get us to do what? Run to Jesus. 
And then in that running of Jesus and grasping him, there is a release of what? Spiritual power called grace. Now, there's no infusion of grace in your justification, but there is infusion of grace in your sanctification. There's power, spiritual power. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He enables you. Um, but again and again, we fail. And as Christians, that either leads us to despair and say, you know, it's just not working for me. You know, I just can't keep my head above water. I try and I try. I promise the Lord I'm not going to do it anymore. Or I promise the Lord I'm going to read my Bible every day and I'm going to pray a certain amount of time and I'm going to go do, do some good works or be conscious of people's needs around me. And we find ourselves, nobody can consistently do that. There's only one who consistently did that, and that's Jesus. But we, we get to despair. And despair is what? Give up. And then it can easily fall into a bitterness, which is, you know, I don't want to play the game anymore. I'm done. And so some people get there faster than others. So you either get to despair, you get to a grim determination to continue. But the grim determination to continue just puts you in a cycle of failure over and over again. So you have to learn to return to your foundation. That is why Martin Luther made the statement that justification, I mean, uh, sanctification is getting used to your justification. And that's true as far as it goes. That's not all that sanctification is about, but that's part of it. Part of it is learning how to return again and again to the fact that though I fail, I am accepted in the beloved. Uh, God looks at me with favor. I have his approval. And so, there is in this, and, and returning to the foundation of justification by grace alone doesn't undermine your efforts, but rather it purifies them. Because we know that uh, our efforts are no longer needed to affirm, to prove, or justify ourselves. Only when we no longer need to justify ourselves with our works are we able to do this since we are now free from ourselves to really do good works, works that mean something for God. Uh, one of the things that, that I found helpful in reading Martin Luther for a couple of years was he said that if you fall into the trap of works righteousness, in other, in other words, I achieve my righteousness, I get God's smile and approval and acceptance through my performance, through what I do and how well I do it, he said, one of the things that that does is reinforce your self-centeredness. That's all it does to you. It just drives you deeper into self. And uh, that's not godly. That's not piety. And so it becomes that. He says, once you look at free grace, you understand the doctrine of justification as the foundation of your life, he said, then you're free not to be preoccupied with yourself, and the energy you have used to justify yourself now becomes channeled or available to reach out and get out of yourself and reach out to others. And so, a lot of wisdom in that. So, in sanctification, man is freed from his egocentrism or self-centeredness and renewed to an eccentric life, 
oriented toward God, his neighbor, and the world. So if justification is the foundation and sanctification is the process, what is the goal? What does the relaxed effort which our justification grants us look like? Luther said, I mentioned earlier, sanctification is getting used to your justification and that progress in sanctification is always beginning again. That's why Luther said in his first of the 95 theses, what did he say? Anybody know? Do I have to tell you all this? <laughs> said. Uh, me too. That's why I ask. Look, it's, it's not because I care for audience response. I can't remember it. Uh, no, I can remember. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, will that the life of a Christian be one of what? Continual repentance. Thank you. So that's beginning again. You should be repenting every day. Every day. Or you're not even in the game. Repenting, repenting, repenting ought to be our posture. And that's what I mean by beginning again. And so the two goals I see of sanctification are freedom and love. Let's start with freedom. The kind of freedom that sanctification leads to, as Mark said earlier, is counterintuitive as well when compared with our culture's concept of freedom. So if you hear somebody sing a song today about freedom, what do they usually mean? Well, if they're really nice people, do what you want as long as it doesn't harm anyone, right? I mean, you know, that's that's the self-righteous view of freedom. But, yeah, isn't that what our culture means by freedom? That there are no restraints? That nobody is the boss of you? I remember my girls when they were little, I heard this constantly, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> and I would walk in the room and go, but I am the <laughs> boss of you. They didn't like that either. <laughs> so, freedom, when looked at by our culture, really at the bottom line, is the right and ability to determine to do what I really want to do. And if you're nice, as long as it harms no one else, but you don't have a very big range of understanding what harm is. It is freedom with no restrictions, right? No boundaries, no laws, no rules. It is autonomous. It is antinomian. It is self-governing and lawless. That's what our culture's view of freedom is. But in 1520, Martin Luther wrote one of the charter documents for the Reformation entitled The Freedom of the Christian. In it, he offered the following paradox. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. So what's he saying? You're absolutely free. Yet, at the same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Now, you should feel some tension with that statement. And the reason you should feel some tension is because it's a dialectic. He used a lot of dialectical, uh, philosophical approach in his reasoning. And what he's saying is there is one sense in which I am absolutely free in Christ. There's another sense in which I am enslaved. But who am I enslaved to? Christ. You trade one form of slavery for another. That's Christian freedom. Now, how many of you here really enjoy being a servant? I was going to call call you on the 
uh, bearing false witness if you said that. Most of us struggle with the concept of serving. Why? Because usually when I'm asked to serve or you're asked to serve, to get out of ourselves and go help somebody who's in misery or trouble, it's usually at the most inconvenient time, isn't it? Have you ever been had to serve when it was convenient for you? No. But that's the life we're called to. And so the first proposition does not lead to autonomy, but rather to obedience that we're totally free. In obedience and response to the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, one does not receive grace because one obeys. One obeys because one has received grace. One has been set free by Jesus to live before God, Coram Deo, and his neighbor. Christians are not free because they bear fruit and do good works. They do good works and bear fruit because they're free in Christ. Calvin adds that justification produces freedom by saying this, to understand and experience justification is to be set free from sin and free for serving God and your neighbor. And so this freedom in reality is a slavery to God. Romans 6.15 and 1 Corinthians 6.19 both say that. It is both total subjection and total security. If God is more powerful than my guilt and shame and all that threatens me, and if nothing can separate me from his love, then life receives, as it were, a totally new face. The idols that used to rule my actions began to lose their grip on me. My bond and relationship with God is decisive, and my idols are relativized. What I mean by that is the distance between the idols of the heart and my worship of them is freedom. Think about that. That's true freedom. Now, I'm not saying I don't have idols. I have so many. If if I went on an idol hunt, that's all I would do. That is all I would do. But freedom is the distance between the idols of my heart and the worship of them. I acknowledge I have them, but my heart wants to be set upon Christ because he gives me everything the idols promise so freedom is not only slavery to God, but also, in a positive sense, bondage to our neighbor. Luther posited that once justification by grace alone through Christ alone is grasped by faith alone, we are released from the bondage of works righteousness, which is self-centered and set free to love our neighbor. The energy we once used to justify ourselves is redirected from gaining the approval of God by performance rather than being Incurvatus in se, that is curved in upon ourselves, in self-absorption. You ever been curved in on yourself and self-absorbed? I, I tell you, people today are so unself-aware. It's unbelievable. I mean, get a clue. You know, I don't go around saying that, but I see it in a lot of people. And the hardest person for me to see it in is who? Me, me. But I am seeing it more and more. And so what has the power to take a person who's totally curved in on themselves, self-obsessed, self-absorbed, life revolves around me, and get them to move out of themselves toward others, our neighbor? Freedom is not an ideal we strive for, but a reality we enjoy 
And so the only thing I know that has the power to do that is the gospel. The gospel has the power to curve you out. And then Thomas Chalmers uh, preached a sermon on the expulsive power of a new affection. He said it's not enough to just stop sinning. <laughs> you need power to overcome sin. And he says a new affection is that power that uh, through the grace of God working in our hearts, uh, that empowers us as we go back again and revisit the gospel. Uh, that's where we get the expulsive power of a new affection. And then our worship transfers from idols and self and comfort. Um, you know, I... I don't like to talk about my idols too much because, but I will tell you one of them is comfort. I love comfort. I live for comfort. My whole life's about comfort. And my, my most thing I get the angriest about is what? Being uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's pretty selfish, isn't it? That is an extremely selfish way to live. Don't disturb my comfort. I remember one day one of my girls calling me with a flat tire or something. First, I said to myself, why didn't you get the AAA when you had the chance? <laughs> See the guy back there? <laughs> and then I, I was so angry about it, and I was driving, and I said, why are you so angry? What is it? I mean, that's your daughter. You do love her. She didn't do it on purpose. She didn't put a nail in the tire or shoot a hole in it. She needs your help. What's wrong with you? Go help your daughter with a cheerful heart. And then the Lord said, that's your idol, son. That's your idol. She disturbed your comfort. This is how long ago it was. I was watching a rented video. <laughs> they don't even have video rental places anymore. It's gone the way of the cassette tape and the CD. I mean, I have, I have a car I'm driving right now that will play either a CD or a cassette. That's ancient. It's an antique. But that's how God uncovers those things. Now, when I remembered what Christ did for me upon the cross, took upon, I mean, he, he was uncomfortable, wasn't he? <laughs> Extremely uncomfortable. That, that's, that's even silly to use the word. But when I think about that, it makes me worship him, and then I become the kind of person who's cheerful to go help my daughter. And not, you know, why didn't you check the air? You know, that's the first thing a dad says is, I told you, check the air. You got a place right down here, go check the air. If you see a tire, look at them. You know, a daughter never looked, well, I don't know about your daughter. But they're kind of like, you know, as long as it has gas in it, we're good. Um, so what does freedom look like? It is both inner and outer, vertical and horizontal. First, we are free from the law as a means by which we establish a relationship from God. Christ's perfect obedience to the law becomes mine as much as if I did it myself. The law can no longer curse me, condemn me, oppress me, or intimidate me. Christ took all of that for me. Second, I am free for the law. In the hands of sin, law is death. In the hands of the Spirit, Law becomes to us a delight because I'm free to delight and please God and I have a desire to obey it. So in sanctification, what should be my posture? I want to be 
obedient to the law. Why? Because I see that it is a wonderful life. I just can't keep it, but it's a wonderful life, and I want to. And so third, we are free toward indifferent things. We're free to participate or not participate in doubtful things. Look at Romans 14. We have an outer freedom. The world, the powers of darkness, no longer have authority over us. We have freedom of the Spirit who frees us from the destructive power of sin and its desires and cravings. And so the first outcome of sanctification, where God begins the process of writing his law on my heart, it happens in regeneration, and then sanctification is God, through the Spirit, writing his law on my heart, and my heart resonates with it, desires, wants to obey. If I could be 100% obedient to the law, I would have a much more fulfilling, happy life. And oddly enough, that's what heaven is going to be. A whole lot of love, right? Loving God, loving my neighbor. People I can't stand here, I love everybody in this room. It's just, or as, as pastors say, I love humanity, it's just people I can't stand. But uh, more and more, as you grow in grace, your capacity for love grows too. And uh, that's what's really going to make heaven heaven. But the second outcome of the goal or goal of sanctification is love. And freedom and love belong together inseparably. God desires free men, but freedom exists for the sake of love, and love is made possible through freedom. They're sort of symbiotic. The purpose of freedom is to awaken love. Freedom is the ability to take an independent stance toward the world in order to pass on to the world the renewing power of love which we receive as we are in communion with our Savior. The usual concept of freedom is self-realization without being hemmed in, hampered by the demands or put on us by God, other people, or the world. In this view, freedom and love are mutually exclusive. Christ confronts us as a man who freed himself from the demands of the powers that be in order that he might fully free, be fully free to minister to others the love of God. The love of our neighbor, not love to God, is the mark of biblical freedom. Love for God occurs because he first loved us, and that logically precedes freedom. Our spontaneous reaction to that love is to love our neighbor. Love of neighbor is a consequence of God's love for me. He pours out his love into my heart by his spirit. But the focus of my love, I don't, I don't have to, I already love God because he put his love in me by his spirit. Uh, Romans 5 tells me that. But herein is not love that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so what that love does, it frees us. I'm kind of, this lesson struck me because it follows up on what Keith was teaching about our responsibilities for uh, justice, uh, social justice and those kind of things which are important. But you'll never do it if you don't have this. You won't do it. Unless the gospel grasp on you is so powerful, you're going to be preoccupied with self. And the only thing that can free, and, and the only way you would do it out of self is in order to get the applause of others or to feel good about yourself. You, you talk about all these altruistic acts and you ask a person why they do it. I don't 
ever here because I love God and his love has, and what Christ has done for me motivates me and moves me and melts my heart and makes me want to give. No, they always say, why? Because it makes me feel better. Makes me feel good. Well, good. I mean, common grace is common grace. That's good in that regard. But before God, that's love with the wrong kind of motives. That isn't love at all. But love of my neighbor is a consequence of my love of God. So who is my neighbor? Not everyone or even those who are geographically close by. My neighbor is the person who stands in my way, who irritates me, and by his animosity, who appeals to me by his need for help. My neighbor is the one who disturbs me and is annoyingly unlovable and yet reminds me that my relationship with God is in some way analogous to my neighbor's relationship with me. It is even loving my enemies. Loving my enemies. That challenges me to represent God's love by making the need of my neighbor my concern. It means getting down and dirty and messy and otherwise inconvenienced. Think of the good Samaritan. He was the one who loved his neighbor. Freedom enables and empowers such love as this. Okay? Now, I'm at the final paragraph, so if you want to say something, you better say it now. Oh, good. It's almost time, right? A person's security in Christ frees us from the constant need to prove ourselves or to judge others. Now, don't be judgmental, judging others. What does it mean to judge others? Because in some senses, you have to look at other people and make estimations, but what does it mean to judge somebody? Yeah, you condemn a person for being a sinner. Well, guess who else is a sinner? Let's see, oh, what, uh, tree trunk in your eye and the speck in somebody else's eye? Uh, out of Luke's gospel? Judging others is having a condemning attitude toward it. It's taking pleasure in looking at other people's faults and thinking what? I'm better. Which is why virtue signaling is the new self-justification strategy of America. What's virtue signaling? When I went to seminary, First class I was in. I'm sitting down with a styrofoam cup full of coffee, you know, trying to keep up. And this might have been an afternoon class, I forget. And the professor comes in, he says, how many of you are Calvinists? Well, you know, most everybody at Reformed Seminary is going to admit that whether you are or not. So hands all went up. And he said, no good God-fearing Calvinist would ever use a styrofoam cup. Now, it took all the power of God within me not to throw it at him. Because <laughs> I'm going to let you know you don't talk to me. You know, and then I realized, okay, that's not the best way to rebuke somebody in public, in front of the whole school. But, but judgment is just, I'm forgetting I'm a sinner. I'm better than you. Virtue signaling is... You know, I care about the environment, so I do this and so. Or I don't like to harm animals, so I'm a vegan. Or uh, I want to get rid of straws because they get tangled up. 
You know, and those things are fine. I don't have any big issue with being green and being concerned about being environmentally concerned is a very Calvinistic thing to do, very reformed thing to do. But it's signaling it to other people, shaming them. Why? Because I'm eating a big gold steak. I'm eating a huge steak and loving it. And I was just in California, so spare me. In West Hollywood, so spare me. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a country boy from Tennessee. I'm going to have meat. I'm going to eat it. Because God made it, and he's really happy when we receive it with gratitude and eat it. So there you go. Without judging all these other people, fine. If they want to do that, they want to be miserable, I'll let them. But that, <laughs> but you may. I know. Why is it every time I'll be sitting with my wife and we'll be at some church meeting, the denomination, some guy will get up and talk. I'll lean over and go, I can't stand that guy. And she'll smile and go, he reminds me a lot of you. <laughs> every time. Every time. Yeah. Because uh, it never, uh, what is it called? It doesn't rot. It doesn't buy, yeah. It, it's forever, so they say. And so therefore we were using an oil product. Isn't it an oil product, ultimately, styrofoam? Yeah, it was a very un, in this guy's view, very unreformed thing to be doing. So there you go. There is one addendum, but I don't have time to get into it. Uh, I'll probably just make this available somewhere. David uh, Pallison has done a really good job of talking about the out-of-balanced approach to some of the gospel-centered people by making it absolute in some of the things I talked about today. And I read it and I thought, this is really good, but you're not going to get it today. Get it later. David Pallison. The book is... Uh, Sanctification is in the title. He's anything that man writes, read it. He's just he's dead now though, so he won't be writing anymore. But uh yeah. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together and thinking about these matters. They are uh deep and challenging, but we pray that by your grace we will grow more and more into the image of Christ, being delivered more and more from the power of sin so that we may love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.